0: We're reading this evening from James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. We'll get to that, those verses in just a moment. One thing any interested, attentive reader of commentaries on the letter of James immediately notices is the widespread frustration of scholars who have looked long and hard to find some principle of organization in the letter. The Gospels are organized in a largely chronological way, the report of the Lord's ministry, the record of it, as it happened. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that chronology interrupted with sections of teaching. There's an obvious organization to the material, And it's easy to understand why one thing follows another. In the letters of Paul, we're well used to the way in which he builds an argument piece by piece. And we're used to his pattern, such as we find it in Romans, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, of following his theological exposition of salvation and the grace of God with its ethical implications. therefore separating the first and the second part of his letter. This is what Christ has done for you. Now, therefore, in gratitude, you live for him in this particular way. Even the book of Revelation has its recapitulations, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven plagues. There is in all the other books of the New Testament a beginning, a middle, and an end and it's not at all difficult to see how they are connected one with the other. But not so with James. But as we said, this is the New Testament's book of wisdom, and we're used to the same problem in the Old Testament's principal book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. Modern scholarship has invested increasing effort to discover some principle of organization of the Proverbs from their beginning in chapter 10, and perhaps some minor advances have been made, but we all know from our reading of the book that the Proverbs are jumbled together, one subject following another with no obvious connection between them. It would be so much simpler if all the Proverbs having to do with money, or all the Proverbs having to do with speech, or all the Proverbs having to do with parents and children were placed together in one section. But it is not so. When not so long ago I was working my way through Proverbs in a series of evening sermons, I color-coded the Proverbs that belonged to nine of the principal subjects of the book. Parents and children, marriage, work, speaking and listening, money, controversy, and so on. Each color is found repeatedly through the book, and each color is found next to one of the other colors at some point or another in the book. Speech is next to money in one case, next to parents and children in another, next to work in still another. The Proverbs simply don't seem to have been organized. They're simply listed in what, I suppose, was the order in which they were found in the document from which they were taken up into the biblical book. The Proverbs of Solomon, or the sayings of the wise, or whatever. And why do the words of Lemuel and the account of the virtuous virtuous woman come last? Is there some significance to their placement? Perhaps someday some brilliant Old Testament scholar will discover a principle of organization in the book of Proverbs that nobody has detected before, but I'm not holding my breath. Well, precisely the same question confronts the reader of James. Why does verse 5 follow verse 4? And why does verse 9 follow verse 8? No one seems to know, and you have only to read through the first chapter yourself, to feel the force of the question. I've read up on this question, and I certainly don't know the answer. Most commentators don't put things as tartly as Martin Luther did, who characterized James as thrown together quite chaotically, but that's their conclusion as well. A former professor of mine and of some of you, Henry Krobendam of Covenant College, in a major two-volume work on James, proposed to do better. And no doubt he says some helpful things about the overarching theme of James and how the various parts of the letter contribute to that theme. But for all of his work, he hasn't persuaded me that he's located an internal logic or structure to the organization of the material. We're still wondering why James wrote (coughs) verses 5 through 8, after verses 2 through 4, and not after 9 through 11, and so on. So, like it or not, we're compelled to take James, as we take Proverbs, in small sections, dealing with the individual subject under under consideration and making little or no effort to to relate that subject to what has come before or to what comes after. Not ideal, but there it is. As one fine commentator on James says of chapter 1, only by reading into the text considerably more than James says can a single topic be imposed on the section as a whole. So, verses 5 through 11. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, And it will be given him. Now, once again, let me remind you what wisdom is in the Bible. It's the skill of living well, of practicing holiness in an unholy world with your own unholy heart. It is practical sagacity. The ability to apply the truth of God to the practical daily issues and challenges of life. Having said all that I've said about James' lack of an obvious structure, we can say at least this about the connection between verse 4 and verse 5. In verse 4, James spoke of how our trials can lead us to perfection and completeness, to our lacking nothing. But he begins verse 5 by saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, perhaps the thought runs like this. In the midst of trouble, as we so often are, it's hard to see how our trials can possibly serve our spiritual growth and maturity. To see that connection and then to apply it to your situation, you need wisdom. So ask God for it. Pray for it. James certainly doesn't mean that if one prays for wisdom, he or she will need do nothing else. Nor does he mean that in answer to one prayer, God is going to give you all the wisdom you need for the rest of your life. But the first thing any Christian should always do when confronted with a need is to seek help from God, particularly given God's generous and faithful nature and his commitment to your spiritual welfare and your growth in maturity. James here, as so often in his book, is echoing the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask, and it will be given you. Hence his without reproach also. Our fear is, of course, that our sins will have worn out our welcome with our Heavenly Father, but that is not so. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Verse 5 raised the question whether God would always welcome our prayers for wisdom. Verses 6 and 7 raised the question of our own sincerity. I once heard a sermon by a television preacher in which he said that we should never pray for anything more than once. Because, he said, if we pray for it a second time, that indicates we didn't really believe that God would hear us the first time. And so we cancel out that first prayer with our second. I hope you know that is absurd. The Bible encourages us to pray continually, even relentlessly, for the same thing. That's not what James means by saying that we have to have faith when we pray. He's not saying that the prayers we pray, when our faith may be weak, or when we are struggling to believe that God is really hearing us and is going to answer us, that those prayers are null and void. His concern is of an entirely different sort, but it is put in that dramatic and absolute way so characteristic of the Hebrew Bible. And remember, James was a Jew, and he wrote according to the thought world of the Old Testament. He's not saying that we must always have faith devoid of even the shadow of doubt, he's saying rather that our lives must betray a true commitment to the Lord. The question he's asking of us is, are we really committed to the way of wisdom? Do we really want that way of life? And so when we ask God for it, are we genuine in our desire that God should hear and answer our prayer? Or are we simply wanting God's help while we keep our foot firmly planted in the world and in its pleasures? Double-minded describes a person who's committed, whose commitment is half-hearted, who's not really determined to live for the Lord. Like Janus, the Roman god who had two faces looking in opposite directions, such a person wants to be a Christian, he looks to God, but he also wants to live as a non-Christian and continues to look with longing at the world. We have this same distinction throughout the Bible. For example, in Psalm 119.2, we read that God blesses those who pursue him with a whole heart. And we read in Psalm 12, verse 2, that the person who exi- exhibits a divided heart is condemned. This is James' way of talking about the same thing the Lord Jesus described as wanting to serve two masters. And remember his conclusion, you cannot serve both God and money. You have to choose between them. Such people find their prayers for wisdom vitiated because they are insincere, they're hypocritical. Jesus said a similar thing, for example, when he said that a person who forgives others will have his or her own sins forgiven but that a person who is unforgiving will not. You have to live a Christian life to enjoy the blessings of that life and to enjoy the favor of God. Double-minded people are unstable. They're always swinging between two opinions, two commitments, never able fully to make up their mind as to whether they will follow the Lord or the world. You cannot live skillfully in this world, until and unless you make up your mind. Am I a Christian in truth or not? Am I going to live as a Christian or am I not? Is my commitment to Christ or is it to something else? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 11 reminds us, of course, um, as do many statements in the Bible, that use the transitory existence of vegetation as a simile or a metaphor For the brevity of human life, perhaps most famously in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like the flower of the field, the wind blows over it and it is gone, its place remembers it no more. We said last time that half of biblical wisdom is perspective. An outlook on life, an understanding of the way of life in this world. That's what we find here. Riches are one thing to someone who knows that they are not the measure of his life, that he will very soon have to leave them behind. There's something entirely different for someone who imagines that his or her happiness, the meaning and significance of his or her life depends on these things. In a similar way, the poor man who realizes that he is a prince in the kingdom of God and very soon is going to enjoy pleasures and wealth beyond what any human being has ever enjoyed in this world thinks very differently about his poverty. It's inevitable that he should, is it not? But of course, such a perspective has to be retained. It has to be a living power in the mind and heart. Living under the prospect of eternity, is half of biblical wisdom. So far, the word of God. We've said already that however James organized his material, the book as a whole is a book of wisdom. And these two paragraphs are what the Bible means by wisdom. The other day, someone put on my desk a copy of an article taken from a church news and opinion website, the Aquila Report, a site run by some PCA men. And the article alerted me to something I had never known before, and I expect you didn't know it either. The first successful daylight bank robbery in the United States occurred in Liberty, Missouri on February 13, 1866. One young man, a passerby, was killed and the bank robbers got away and were never caught or punished. However, it was an open secret in the area that the perpetrators were the members of Jesse James' gang. Here is where the story gets interesting. At the time of the robbery... Jesse James was a member in good standing of the First Baptist Church of nearby Kearney, Missouri. The church minutes record that deliberations to impose ecclesiastical discipline on Jesse were complicated by the fear that he might burn down the church in in retaliation. Everyone in the community... Uh, so it says in the report, knew Jesse was staying at his mother's farm. She was herself a Sunday school teacher. So two deacons, the Baptist equivalent of elders, were deputed to confront Jesse according to the Lord's instructions in Matthew 18. However, perhaps not surprisingly, you know elders Uh, The next minutes report that for one reason or another the deacons were unable to find a convenient time to visit the farm (laughs) and have their conversation with Jesse James. Perhaps they were remembering that the teller of the bank in Liberty had been pistol whipped by the bandits. The minutes then report that Jesse himself arrived at the meeting and wishing to cause no embarrassment to the congregation requested that his name be removed from the roll. The church obliged. I can't vouch for the accuracy of that report, but given the widespread religious profession of Americans in the mid-19th century, it's not hard to believe at all that such a thing happened. Most mafiosi, I didn't know until I checked the dictionary that the plural of mafioso is mafiosi, Most mafiosi are Roman Catholics. It is possible to be a professional criminal and a member of the Christian church. But James reminds us, let's never kid ourselves. A man who professes to be a Christian, but lives as an unbeliever, or makes his living in a way that betrays a profession of loyalty to Jesus Christ, Will receive nothing from the Lord, certainly not salvation. He is double-minded. Now perhaps a Christian bank robber is such an oxymoron that it doesn't help for us to, uh, help us to grasp the point that James is making, but then perhaps the more outrageous the example, the more obvious the lesson. You know Jesse James was a double-minded man. You know that a mafioso is a double-minded man. But surely the Lord is not just talking about people who profess to be Christians and happen happen to make their living as professional criminals. A man who asks God for wisdom, for the practical sagacity to work out a holy life in the fear and the love of God in the midst of the daily grind, but otherwise demonstrates indifference to God's will and shows no practical gratitude for God's grace and mercy to him is fooling himself, not God. God knows a hypocrite when he sees one because he looks upon the heart and knows what a man really wants and really thinks. And he always knows what a man really does. Now, you may think that all perfectly obvious that anyone should know that, But the fact is, vast multitudes of people through the course of human history have lived just such a double-minded life. Monday through Saturday, they sow their wild oats and come to church on Sunday to pray for crop failure. They pose as Christians, no doubt in many cases, genuinely believing themselves to be Christians. But it would never occur to them to rejoice in their trials or to boast in their poverty because they don't see themselves, they don't see the world as a real Christian must and will. They do not have a biblically informed perspective on life. A large part of what the Bible means by wisdom. It's Reformation Sunday, and I've told you before, that if the typical priest in Europe in the early 16th century, the time of Martin Luther, had frequently and sincerely warned his congregation of only this, and then backed it up with his own life, that real Christians and that true and living and saving faith are invariably known by their fruits, that you cannot love God and money at the same time, that faith without works is dead, what James will tell us in chapter 2. I say, if a regular message of the Christian pulpit in those days had been that those who want the blessings of Christ in their lives must submit their lives to Christ and live in wisdom, there never would have been a Protestant Reformation. The errors of the church would have been discussed and corrected from within. But it was precisely the church's failure to assert clearly and persuasively precisely what James is saying here that made the Reformation so necessary. Indeed, the double-mindedness of the Christian clergy as a class was an open secret. Everybody knew that the priests were by and large double-minded men, having taken a vow of celibacy, but keeping mistresses. A vow of poverty, but looking for money at every turn. A vow of spiritual responsibility, but generally unconcerned and uninvolved in the spiritual lives of those in their care. Real faith is tested by one's practical, daily, loyalty and commitment to Jesus Christ by a person's living with eyes wide open to the theological realities of human life. That's biblical wisdom. The deep understanding that life is serious business. That what finally matters and all that finally matters is our faithfulness to God. And that we are susceptible to temptations at every turn to care about a host of other things than those things that matter for eternity. Listen to this from Alex Mateer, the English Evangelical Biblical Scholar. One of the frightening features of the present day is the widespread dependence on sedatives to cope with situations which our grandparents would not have seen as a problem. Ordinary factors like bringing up children, facing A tomorrow which is essentially the same as today. Problems of feeling trapped and bored. Here we are in Washington with legalized marijuana. Recreational marijuana, they called it. Problems of having time and not knowing how to fill it. The cynic would say that the problem, whether there is a life after death, has been replaced with the problem of whether there is a life before death. But essentially, it is the problem of finding meaning. What James says can be answered by a gift of wisdom, or which question, James says, can be answered by a gift of wisdom from God given to those whose personalities are integrated around him, granted to those whose hearts confess a sole loyalty to him. James' diagnosis does not find expression in many consulting rooms, but that does not affect its truth as an acute diagnosis of the modern human problem. Think of these three pieces of wisdom that James gives us here. In God's world, we need God's help to handle the trials and the demands of life. Prayer is not simply a duty, a religious activity, It is an essential instrument of godly, skillful, successful living. We need day after day and all through the day what only God can give us. At every turn in our lives, remember James is writing to Christians, we are beset with temptations to parcel out our loyalty between God, our own flesh, and the world. Real wisdom is, begins with the recognition of this battle, this constant, relentless struggle that is required in order to offer our hearts and lives without reservation to God day after day after day. The man or woman who knows very well that he or she is in this endless battle approaches life in a very different way, more seriously more intentionally, more consciously dependent on the grace of God, more sympathetically in his relationships with others, more phlegmatically, less high, less low, honestly recognizing, constantly realizing that this and nothing else, this struggle to be loyal to God, is the Christian's calling and his destiny. And three, our perpetual temptation is to forget What really matters? And to be beguiled by the things we can see and feel at the expense of the truths that God has revealed in his word. Now ask yourself, if this is not precisely the wisdom you need every day, aren't those insights, that practical sagacity, what you require out of which a faithful, fruitful Christian life could be lived day by day. Is not our problem in some way always and only this double-mindedness, this serving of two masters, or at least this constant forgetting of one of them? God, on the one hand and on the other, money or pleasure or recognition or comfort or ease, or our fears, our worries, our concerns, whatever. Now, as I said, James is writing to Christians. In the tradition of biblical wisdom literature, the contrast that he draws is absolute, as if there were only the faithful and the double-minded. James certainly knows that there is double-mindedness in every Christian heart. His exhortations throughout the book are going to feature admonitions to Christians to stop behaving and living like non-Christians. For example, in chapter 3, he's going to admit that we all stumble in many ways. That's in the second verse. Before going on to describe our typical sins of the tongue, and he concludes that depressing description by saying in verse 10, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James knows that Christians often have weak faith, that he or she often struggles with double-mindedness, even if in a typical biblical fashion he draws the comparison absolutely in verse 6 of chapter 1. It's wisdom, again, to apply that absolute contrast to the mixture of faith and worldliness that every Christian finds within himself or herself. Wisdom knows the difference between the genuine and the perfect. Between true love and perfect love. Between loyalty and perfect loyalty. True enough, in some cases, only time proves whether the the love or the loyalty were genuine. But no one doubts that the Apostle Paul was a loyal servant of Jesus Christ, even though he confessed to many failures of loyalty. So it's possible to say that we genuinely believe in Jesus. We trust him to be true to the promises that he has made to those who pray to him, even as we struggle against double-mindedness in ourselves. Isn't this the way the Bible always speaks about the Christian? It can call him or call her blameless or righteous. At the very same time, it is acknowledging his or her many sins. And failures. So when we come to the first example that James gives us in verses 9 through 11, we recognize, of course, that we struggle to maintain this eternal perspective. But our struggle to do so doesn't mean that this is not our genuine, our real view of life. In fact, we know what James says is right. We want ourselves always to think and live this way. We admire this perspective when we see it in others. We pray for it to be our own. And some of the time, we really do practice this wisdom in our lives, and when we don't, we regret the failure. It is our view of things, even if we struggle always to think and act in consistency with it. We know that poverty, soon to be followed by unimagined wealth and pleasure, is poverty in name only. Just as we know that earthly wealth is not only temporary, but in many cases a positive hindrance. Dr. Krabendam recollects saying in a lecture on this very passage that both poverty and riches, of whatever sort they may be, are equally trials. He was relating verses 9 through 11 to verses 2 and 3. A young man in the audience, the kind of young man you often find in college lectures, raised his hand to ask the question, Are wealth and poverty equally trials? Yes, equally, Professor Kravendam replied. In that case, said the young man, I'd prefer to be rich. But Dr. K was quick on his feet and reminded him that while it is said that it is more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that is never said of a poor man. And a man who values eternity more than time, as any wise person will, will not think that distinction unimportant. If poverty has slain its thousands, prosperity has slain it's ten thousands. On April 21st, 2012, Pastor DeMass and I used some tickets that belonged to Jim and Paige Price to go to the Mariners game against the Chicago White Sox. The prices were in Florida for the funeral of Jim's father. It was a brilliant, lovely, warm, sunny Saturday afternoon. A perfect day for a baseball game and we had great seats. Only ten rows from the field directly opposite first base. Unbeknownst to us, it was to prove a memorable day. Philip Humber, pitching for the Chicago White Sox, threw the 21st perfect game in baseball history. 27 Mariners up, 27 down. There are baseball fans who have gone to thousands of baseball games and have never seen a perfect game. Rick and I have gone to only a few, and yet we saw one of the rarest events in Major League Baseball. Now, I mention this because Philip Humber is a Christian, a very earnest and practiced Christian, and he's a wise man. After his accomplishment, one that he's going to be remembered forever by baseball purists, he tweeted, Nothing to be compared with knowing God. And then added the reference, Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, which, as you may remember, read, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Exactly what James was saying, though James also adds a reminder of the fleeting quality of our lives in this world and how foolish it is for that reason also to devote our heart and our life to find one's meaning in something so soon Will be lost. Philip Humber knows about this too. Since that perfect game in 2012, he lost his job with the White Sox. He simply didn't pitch well enough. He was picked up by the Houston Astros, soon lost his position with them, played 2013 in the Oakland A's minor league system, in 2014 was playing in South Korea and was finally cut by that Korean team. His major league totals are 16 wins and 23 losses, with an earned run average of 5.31, not a performance likely to keep anybody in the show. Philip Humber, quite literally, had his one day in the sun. He didn't have to wait until his death to lose what he had, He's still a comparatively young man, and he's already lost it. So far as fame and fortune and boatloads of money are concerned, his grass has already withered, his flower has already fallen, and his beauty has already perished. As a rich man, at least as the world measures wealth, he's already faded away in the midst of his pursuits. But I suspect that Philip Humber is someone who understands very well that what he has lost is a bagatelle compared to what is his in Christ. When he was rich, after pitching that perfect game, he boasted in his humiliation. He was a sinner saved by grace. And now that he's poor, or at least relatively so, he can very happily boast in his exaltation. It isn't hard to see, is it, how differently we must think about our lives, how different our priorities must be, what different decisions we will invariably make, how differently we will spend our time and our money if we treasure a godly life and the wisdom it takes actually to live one. If we're constantly in conversation with the Lord about wanting to live such a life, and asking him to give us the wisdom by which we could, and if we're always keeping our mind's eye on the world to come, racing toward us as it is with breakneck speed. I don't know why James put verses 5 through 11 where he did, but I know this. If you and and I embrace this wisdom, if we work these convictions into our hearts and our lives, if we evaluate our living by these principles, if we aspire to throw off all double-mindedness and live at all times by faith in God, and if we evaluate everything with reference to our salvation and the prospect of eternal life, we're not only going to live a very different life, we're going to live a much better life. Indeed, we're going to live the very life any genuine Christian desperately wants to live and is going to so much want to have lived when his life is done. James is not loading us down with duties. He's reminding us of, what, of how things actually are in this world and what it takes to live the life Christians want to live. How good of God to give us this help to give us this encouragement and to give us this kick in the pants. Amen.